Happy Mother's Day for me as well. Glad to get to worship with you uh, on this Mother's Day. Those of you who are here with mom, uh, we did set up a little photo booth section in the back corner of the fellowship area. So we invite you to, to get good pictures with mom before you leave today and enjoy that opportunity. It's really is a gift uh, to get to spend this time with your mom. So take advantage of it and enjoy it. A couple of quick announcements before we get in. First of all, I want to introduce myself. My name is Fred. I'm the lead pastor here. And if you're visiting with us today, thanks for coming to check us out. It's good to have you here. And I uh, would love to, to the opportunity to meet you. I'd, I would be honored if you would come up afterwards and introduce yourself and just say hi. Uh, also, we'd love to be praying for you this week. And so in front of you, on the seat in front of you, there's a thing that we call our Connect card. If you're visiting with us today, please take a moment to fill that out. You can also do so online. Uh, if you prefer to do it that way, on your handout, there's a QR code that will take you uh, right to the online version of that form. So uh, please let us know that you are visiting with us today by filling that out. And then a little bit later in the service, when we receive our offering as a guest, we don't expect you to, to participate by giving financially, but we'd love it if you would put that Connect card in the offering. Well, as we have uh, made a, a really, really positive transition to having two services I want to continue to remind you of the need for volunteers, and so if you're enjoying being a part of the 9 o'clock service, would you consider possibly serving in the 11 o'clock service so that we can continue to invite and welcome more people into the church? Uh, specifically, we need some kids' ministry volunteers. It's a huge blessing to be able to offer kids' ministry classes and for moms and dads to come in and be able to put their kids in a class where they know they're going to enjoy being in church. I love hearing stories of, of families who say, my kids love coming to Redemption Church. They love their kids' classes, and they look forward to it. They ask to come back, uh, but in order to keep providing that, we need volunteers. So if you feel like you could help out with that, and there's opportunities uh, everything from holding babies in the nursery to teaching or being a teacher's assistant uh, and just lots of ways to get plugged into our kids' ministry. Please let us know if you can help with that. We do have an opportunity, speaking of uh, you moms and ladies, we have an opportunity coming up uh, on Friday, May 22nd. We're going to have a ladies' craft night, and that's just uh, kind of um, an opportunity to come hang out. It's going to be very laid back. Uh, bring whatever you want to work on or bring nothing at all and just come and hang out and find something to work on while you're here. Uh, but that will just be a great time for some of you ladies to get to know each other better and spend a relaxed evening. So dads, put that on your calendar Friday the 22nd that you're going to take care of the kids, uh, which, you know, start talking to grandma right now and make sure she's available and um, get your plans together for that. But we'd love to have uh, you ladies come out and enjoy some, some time together. Please be in prayer this week. We are hosting a preaching and teaching workshop here through the Still City Church Planning Network on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We have about 23 guys coming together representing 10 different churches in the area, and we're going to be spending those three days together um, sharpening uh, our, our ability to get into the Word and to teach the Word and to preach the Word. And... Um, I would really covet your prayers as we gather together with those men this week on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And, uh, of course, that puts the bar really high for me next week. You're going to be like, well, you were at a preaching workshop, so your sermon next week better be good. And I saw that one coming, so I'm not actually going to preach next weekend. And so I want to invite you. We're going to have a special service next weekend. It's going to be a little bit different. 
We highly value the preaching of God's word on Sunday mornings as part of our worship service. That's something that you'll see we place a huge emphasis on here at Redemption Church. Um, But next week, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're not actually going to have a sermon. I've invited a friend of mine. Her name is Amy Brooks. Some of you have met her over the last few months. She's been here a couple of times. Uh, I've invited her to come and share her testimony. And the reason I've done that is because Amy is going to be moving out of the area in the near future. And I can't let her leave without you hearing her incredible story. Amy was born without arms or legs. And she was abandoned by her birth mom in the hospital. And she has an incredible story and testimony of what God has done in her life. And in fact, the reason why she's going to be moving away is she's getting married this fall right here at Redemption Church. So really looking forward to being a part of that. But I want you to hear her story before she moves. And so I've asked her to come next weekend. She'll be uh, sharing her story in both services. So like I said, it'll be a little bit different. We won't have a sermon next weekend, uh, but we will have an incredible opportunity to hear uh, a great testimony of of how great our God is. So please come and bring friends, uh, bring people with you next week. This is a service you absolutely do not want to miss. It's going to be a great weekend. All right, well, that's it for announcements. Uh, Thank you for letting me get some of those out. They're just always things going on that we want to share with you. In fact, we're working on improving how we share those things with you. Uh, you'll be seeing in the, in the very near future, we're uh, putting together an online calendar of events. And so uh, we're going to add that uh, QR, we're going to add a QR code actually to the handout, much like the other two, where you can just um, put your camera on that and it'll take you to our online calendar of events. As more things uh, begin happening here at Redemption, it's, it's uh, the need to communicate that continues to increase. So that's one of the ways we're going to do that. We're also starting to experiment uh, and get to know some of the software that's available to us to communicate through email and through text messages. And um, please be patient with us as we develop those communication pieces. In one sense, communication is easy today because there's so many different ways to do it. In another sense, it's difficult because everybody prefers a different method of communication. Some people like emails, some people like phone calls, some people like text messages, some people are on Facebook, some people aren't on Facebook. And so uh, there's all kinds of opportunity, but also a lot of challenges. But we're ready to meet those challenges and improve our communication. So expect to see some changes over the next couple of months in that area. All right, we're in the Gospel of John today. Let's get in the Word together. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 47 through 54. We are, as I mentioned last week, going to wrap up this first part of our series in John's Gospel, and we'll take a break from John's Gospel over the next three months and come back to it in the fall. In September, we'll pick up and we'll do the second half of John's gospel. So today we'll conclude the first half and we'll do that by looking at chapter 11 verses 47 through 54. Let's read together. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it's to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. 
Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Let's pray as we look at this word together. Father, thank you for all of the things that we've encountered as we've gone through these first 11 chapters of John's gospel. And God, I thank you for inspiring our brother John some 2,000 years ago to write these words down. We know that this is your message to us. This is your word to us for today, just as much as it was your word to them then. So God, give us ears that can hear your word. Give us hearts that, that are open to being changed. Give us minds who have a willingness to embrace truth and to believe in you. And give us the will to obey, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get to this part of John's gospel, I just real briefly want to say again, for those of you who weren't, maybe weren't here last week, um, there's, a, there's a transition that's going to happen after these verses. Jesus has been ministering publicly. Uh, he's been saying on several occasions, my time has not yet come. And by that, he meant the time to be arrested and to be crucified and to go to the cross to pay for sins. Uh, but there's a transition now that's happening, as you just heard in verse 54, where he, he does not any longer um, minister openly in the public because the Jews have now determined to kill him. When we move on from this passage and pick this back up in the fall, we're going to see that now Jesus' time has come. And his time to lay down his life uh, has finally arrived and the second half, the last 10 chapters of John's gospel are going to be devoted solely to the last week of Jesus' life. Passion week, his crucifixion, his, his arrest and his trial, his resurrection. These are the things that, that John is going to spend an entire half of his gospel on just those few days. But before we get there, I think John brings this, to, this section to a nice conclusion. He brings it to a conclusion that demands a response. So I've titled the message today, Which Kingdom Will You Choose? Which kingdom will you choose? We live in, in, in this tension between two kingdoms, our kingdom and Jesus' kingdom. And we daily have a choice to make which one of those kingdoms we are going to devote ourselves to, which one of those kingdoms we are going to seek to build, which one of those kingdoms we're going to live in obedience to. But before we get to answering that question, let's look at a couple of things that happen in this passage. If you have your hand out and you choose to take some notes today, let's fill in the first set of blanks. The first one is this, Jesus provided overwhelming evidence to substantiate his claims. He provided overwhelming evidence to substantiate his claims. We see this in verse 47. Well, before we get to verse 47, because I want to make sure I give you time to, to write that down. This idea of Jesus providing su substantial evidence, overwhelming evidence, enough evidence to prove that what he was saying is true is one of the most important themes of John's gospel. He devotes a lot of his attention and a lot of his thinking as he makes his argument for who Jesus is to providing evidence. Faith requires that we embrace and believe things that maybe we can't prove empirically, maybe things that we, 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 we cannot demonstrate physically, 
But faith is not blind. Faith in Jesus Christ is rooted in overwhelming evidence, physical evidence, evidence of things that have happened in the natural realm. Verse 47, how do we know this? The chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is the highest court of, of their society. Uh, and this is going to be important to know because we're going to see in, in this same section of verses here a reference to the Romans. So let me just make sure that we all understand real quickly. So the Roman Empire has control of the land of Israel, but they have, for the most part, delegated power and delegated um, authority down to the Jewish leaders to rule over their own people. But they do so with significant intervention. It's not like they've said, okay, this is part of the Roman Empire, and, but you guys are in control and just let us know if you need anything. The Roman Empire is very involved in the government of that land, but they're largely doing that through the Jewish leaders. The Sanhedrin then is a Jewish court. It's made up of, of several different of the, the groups of leaders of the Jewish people of that time, the Pharisees being one of them, the Sadducees as well. And they were the highest law in the land in terms of the Jewish people. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. How do we know Jesus provided overwhelming evidence? Because the highest court in the land is beginning to panic. The highest court in the land is testifying that Jesus is doing so many signs. He's performing so many miraculous uh, uh, wonders and signs among them that if they don't do something to stop him, everyone will believe in him, they say. Of course, we know that would never be true. Jesus could, could continue to go on doing sign after sign after sign, and not everyone will believe because, well, what we're going to look at in just a minute but they, they were becoming overly concerned that the people were going to stop listening to them and start listening to Jesus. And if that happened, that was going to completely upset the apple cart. That was going to cause uh, a chain reaction of events that were going to lead to them losing everything that they held dear. So what were these signs? Well, John gives us seven specific signs in his gospel. We've looked at these as we've gone through these chapters, but let me refresh your memory. Back in chapter two, we saw Jesus turn the water in, into wine. And I saw, I saw, saw a meme or something online this, this week that reminded me of this, and it said something about Jesus going into a restaurant with his 12 disciples and telling the waiter, we'll just have 12 waters, and then he kind of, kind of winks at his buddies, you know. <laughs> but this wasn't really a, so much about uh, creating wine as much as it was a symbol and a sign to the Jewish people that something new was about to happen. In fact, he, he used some of the pieces of the old ceremonial Jewish uh, um, customs and laws uh, to do that. If you remember when we were looking at that passage, this was way back probably in October, when we were looking at that passage, we saw the symbolism in this miracle that Jesus was here to establish a new way of relating to God. He came to the Jewish people and he said something new is happening. So he turns the water into wine. 
In, in chapter, or chapter two, a little bit later, he cleanses the temple and he makes statements to indicate that there is a new temple by which we will worship God in. And that temple is his body. He is the new and greater temple. We see him miraculously heal the nobleman's son in chapter four. In chapter five, he heals the paralytic. A man who, who was paralyzed and, and unable to walk, Jesus made him well. He told him to get up and to take his mat. In John chapter 6, we see him feed the multitude. Remember the miraculous feeding of the thousands of people where they had just a, basically a, a young boy's lunch and Jesus caused it to feed thousands of people. These are the, the miraculous signs that Jesus is doing. And, and he always uses his miracles to teach about who he is. So he feeds the multitude and then he begins to talk about how he's the bread of life and how, how we do well if we, if we don't just seek after physical nourishment, but that he came to bring spiritual nourishment. In John chapter 9, the healing of the blind man. And then here in John chapter 11, just in the last couple of weeks, we looked at the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Seven signs that John chooses to tell us about. Now, is that the overwhelming evidence? Well, I mean, if you look at those, honestly, that's, that's pretty convincing evidence. If you look at the, the things that went into each of those miracles, the suspension of natural law or, or sometimes the overcoming of natural law, sometimes even working within natural law, but it's supernatural speed to, to do things that just can't be done by normal human beings. That's pretty convincing evidence, but that's not all. John says that he chose just seven to tell us, but that, that Jesus had done many, many more signs. In John chapter 20, this is where he speaks this. Let me, I'm going to pick it up a couple of verses before where John actually states that so you catch the flow of this passage. Because here's what's happened in John chapter 20. Jesus has been arrested. He's been crucified. He was dead. They checked to make sure that he was dead. He was definitely dead. He was placed in the, in the tomb. And on the third day, he resurrected from the dead. Now, He's resurrected from the dead, but not everybody has seen him yet. In fact, even among his closest followers, there's at least one man named Thomas who has not seen Jesus after his resurrection. And that's where we pick up in verse 24 of John 20. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands... Put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side. I will never believe. Thomas is an honest skeptic. And, and I'm glad that he is because this is, a good, this is a good thing for us to observe as we think about the validity of the gospel's claim that Jesus rose from the dead. It's good to know that at least one person stood up and said, hey, this is a great story, guys. But until I see him, until I touch and, and, and see the holes in his hands, I mean, Thomas, was, perhaps he was there. At least he would have been familiar with what Jesus' condition would have been after crucifixion. There would have been significant holes in his body because of the way crucifixion was carried out. 
He says, if I don't see that, if I don't put my finger there, if I don't put my hand into his side because Jesus was pierced with a spear in the side at the end of his crucifixion, I will never believe. Good for you, Thomas. Good for you to stand up and say, hey guys, this is ridiculous. (laughs) What are we talking about? You guys are walking around saying, Jesus is alive. I saw him die. And unless I see him alive, and unless I can touch him, unless there's substantial empirical evidence of his resurrection, I'm not getting down with this. I'm not gonna run around saying, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive like you guys. Not till I touch him. Till that moment, I would never believe. So listen to what happens in verse 26. A week later, I like that Jesus waits a week. He doesn't just show up right away. He's, he's not some, some genie that can be summoned by our doubts. He lets Thomas sweat it out. A week goes by. What was that week like? What was it like? I mean, you got these disciples who are convinced that Jesus is alive, and then one of them is like, guys, you're nuts. This is crazy. This is stupid. What are we doing? Must have been a long week for Thomas. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, (laughs) Thomas at this point is hoping that Jesus just like forgets he's there, right? If you're Thomas, you've, you've planted your flag. He said, I'll die on this hill. I'm not, I'm not going along with this hoax of Jesus being alive. And then Jesus shows up and he said to Thomas, put your finger here, look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. That's pretty overwhelming evidence. And it was for Thomas, at least. We read in verse 28, Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. What a great story. Here's a man who, who had reasonable skepticism. We shouldn't just go around believing everything that somebody says. So he doubted. And he said, until there's enough evidence, I won't believe. And so he gets the evidence, and then Jesus says in verse 29, Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. In other words, Jesus is not going to show up in everybody's bedroom who has doubts about his existence or his resurrection and say, look, touch me, see me, feel me, experience me. He's not going to do that. And there's people who are going to stand like Thomas and say, well, until he does, I won't believe. What he does instead is he has provided for us overwhelming evidence in the scriptures. He said, look, here's all the evidence of my life and my ministry and my, my, my death and my resurrection. And then he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Then John goes on to say, this was the point I wanted to get to. I just wanted you to see the context in which John says this. In verse 30, John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, 
And that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the way God has ordained this to happen. This is his plan. This is what he has chosen for salvation to come. This is what he has chosen to bring redemption. He sent his son into the world, and his, his son's life and ministry, his death and his resurrection was, were witnessed by many. And during that time, Jesus did many signs so many signs that they couldn't even all be wrote down. But, but John and the other gospel writers wrote down many of them, enough to answer our questions, enough to answer our objections, and now God says, believe this word. Believe it. Oh, and if you do, blessed are you, because you believe though you haven't seen. Oh, and if you do, you will have eternal life. So let me ask this question. I mean, we all like evidence. We all like to see things for ourselves or experience things for ourselves. We all like to be able to point, things, point to things that say, yeah, I'm not really nuts. This is why I believe. So we ask this question, if Jesus was who he said he was, he would have been able to, and then fill in that blank, what would Jesus need to have done to prove to you that he was who he said he was? If Jesus was who he said he was, he would have been able to. What? Walk on water? He did it. Heal people who were sick? He did it. Speak things prophetically that he couldn't possibly have known in, in, in the natural realm? He did that. Raise people from the dead? He did it. Ah, but if Jesus was who he said he was, then he would be able even to raise himself from the grave. He did it. If Jesus was who he said he was, he would be able to. What did Jesus not do that would convince you that he was who he said he was? Explore the Gospels, and I think that you will find he has provided sufficient evidence to validate and substantiate his claims of being the Son of God. I mean, I can think of things that he didn't do, but none of them are seemingly more convincing than what he did do. He did enough. That's John's conclusion. That's my conclusion. He says here, I'll write down for you seven signs. I'll give you seven witnesses. I'll tell you seven things that Jesus says about himself. And if you want more, I can keep going, but, but is it really gonna help? At what point are you just going to say, that's enough evidence. I'm convinced. I believe. If Jesus was who he said he was, he would have been able to. To what? What didn't he do that would convince you of who he is? So here's where this brings us. If Jesus has provided enough evidence, the next um, fill in the blank that you see on the handout is this. In the end, the real decision wasn't, is this true or not? It was, do I choose my kingdom or Jesus' kingdom. That's what happens in this text. We'll see that. In the end, the real decision that the Jews had to make wasn't, is this true or not? 
The evidence was there. There was plenty of reason to believe that this was true. The real decision was, do I choose my kingdom or Jesus' kingdom? This is uh, uh, also the same decision that we have to make. The Jews were put in this position where, okay, the evidence is right in front of us, guys. Like, this guy's doing so many miracles and so many signs. If we don't do something now, everybody's going to believe in him. You see that, right? That's what they say. So it's not a matter of is this true or not. It's a matter of do we want that to happen? Do we want everybody to believe? Do we want people to follow after Jesus instead of, by implication, following after us? Whose kingdom are we going to choose? Let's look at it. Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and that's, that part was scary enough. Everybody's going to believe in him. That means less people are going to be listening to, him, to them, the Jewish leaders. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That is the heart of the issue. They're not, they, they don't get together to say, should we believe in Jesus? Let's look at the evidence, guys. What's he done so far? They don't get together to say, is this the Messiah? Perhaps many of them were convinced that he was more powerful. Than, well, I think all of them had to have been convinced that he's more powerful than them. We even know that some of them secretly were coming to Jesus. Some of the Jewish leaders, like Nicodemus, were coming to Jesus, and they were putting their faith in him, but they were kind of keeping it a secret, and they were keeping their position, and they would have been there at this convening of the Sanhedrin. There were people there who believed in Jesus. They don't come together to ask themselves, what, is this true? They come together to say, are we going to let him do this? Because if he goes on like this, people will believe in him. They'll stop trusting and following us. The Romans are going to see, hey, this situation's out of control, and they're going to come and they're going to remove us from power, and they're going to take over. In other words, our kingdom will come tumbling down. What we value, our livelihoods, our positions of authority and of leadership, all of that is at stake if we don't stop Jesus. Now, you might be sitting there and be like, well, that's terrible. Why would, why would they decide the fate of Jesus based on that? Why weren't they just concerned about whether or not it was true? And I would say we are exactly like this. The issue for most of us most of the time isn't, is this true? The issue for most of us most of the time is, am I okay with it? Am I going to let Jesus do this? Am I going to submit and surrender to him? In fact, I would argue that atheism exists not because there's not enough evidence of God's existence, but because God's existence is not what sinful man desires. That's what we see happening here. It's not the truth that we want. It's affirmation that that we are at the center of the universe and that what we desire is most important. It's, it's, that's what we seek. We seek affirmation that we are free to seek our own pleasure in all things around us. We want affirmation that we are 
really the king in our kingdom. And to follow Jesus, you have to die to that desire and surrender to him. John, earlier in his gospel in chapter 3, verse 19, 19 through 21, he says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. It's not that the world doesn't have the light of truth. It's not that the world doesn't have the light of the gospel. It's not that the world doesn't have the light of hope that is brought by Jesus' coming and his death and resurrection. It's that the world doesn't want light. It's that we don't want light. It's that we love to live in the darkness. Because in the darkness, we're free to do anything that we want. We're the ruler of our kingdom. But to come into the light is to live. To come into the light is to experience your true purpose in life. And I think about my own story about how I came to faith. And, you know, growing up, I was taught the gospel. And listen, I believed the gospel. I believed that Jesus was who he said he was. I believed that Jesus did what the Bible said he did. And I believed that he did it for me. But for for the first so many years of of my life, I didn't want to give Jesus control of my life. I literally, I, I, I specifically remember thinking, I'll get religious when I get older. Right now, I just want to do what I want to do. I just want to have fun. I just want to follow my passions and my desires. And I just, I, I want to kind of stay in control of what my life is about. It wasn't that I thought, uh, that's nonsense, that Jesus thing, that's crazy. It was that I didn't want what that meant for my life. So I thought, now you, under, you understand all of that radically changed when I came to Christ. And I believed, now I believe how crazy that thinking was because what Jesus wanted for me was actually better than what I wanted for myself. But that was the thing that actually brought me to him, was that as I was going about building my kingdom, as I was going about trying to be the ruler of my universe and to be the one who was in control, I started to realize pretty quickly it doesn't work very well. That I was actually creating more pain and more destruction in my own life. I was just pursuing whatever I wanted to do. And then one night uh, while I was out doing the things I wanted to do, which were getting high, one of my friends had a seizure. uh, And I had what you would call, I guess, a bad high. I became extremely paranoid. And I started to think, you know, this is becoming a pattern, this type of experience. What started out as what I wanted to do, what started out as a lot of fun, what started out as seeking my own joy and my own happiness just seemed to continue again and again, leading me to darker and darker places of pain and discouragement and, and of hopelessness. And that was the thing that finally convinced me, you know what, Jesus isn't something I'm gonna need later in my life. Jesus is something I need right now. And I gave up, or at least began to attempt to, I gave up on building my own kingdom and said, let's live in your kingdom. 
Let's live by your rules. <laughs> Let's live according to your plan. We have to make that transition. We have to make this transition away from uh, choosing to live in our own kingdom and choosing to live by our own rules and surrendering ourselves and submitting ourselves to the true king. Now, why would somebody want to do that? Well, let me give you at least two reasons that I find in this passage. Two things that are, I think, incredibly good news about Jesus' kingdom. Because if you're not convinced that it's better in Jesus' kingdom, then there's a lot of, I, I want to talk to you. There's a lot of things that, that you need to be thinking about. Reasons that, that it is infinitely better in Jesus' kingdom than in the kingdom that you're building. The first one is this. In Jesus' kingdom, the king lays down his life for the citizens. In Jesus' kingdom, the king lays down his life for the citizens. This is from our passage in John chapter 11. In verse 49 of John chapter 11, it says this, one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, so this is a man of great authority among the Jewish leaders and among the Sanhedrin and this, this court that has convened to decide the fate of Jesus. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. This is incredible because he's thinking, I'm listening to what everybody's saying. I'm seeing what's going on here. And guys, you, you, you're, you're not thinking big enough here. You're thinking too small. You're trying to, trying to think of, of how do we get Jesus to stop speaking and how do we get Jesus to stop doing miracles. What we need to do is we need for him to die for the sake of this entire nation. He proposes that in order to stop what they are afraid is about to happen, which is them losing their kingdom, that Jesus be put to death lest the whole nation perish. Now he's doing this from the perspective of trying to save his own kingdom. But John tells us in verse 51, he didn't say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. He didn't even know what he was saying. He was exactly right. It was better that one man should die than everybody should perish. That's the gospel. But he means it in a totally different way. But God is working through this disobedient, rebellious man who desires to kill Jesus to actually prophesy the gospel. He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God so that from that day, from that day on, they plotted to kill him. In Jesus' kingdom, the king lays down his life for the citizens. Why should you give up your kingdom for Jesus' kingdom? Because he's a much better king than you are. He is, he is a sacrificial, loving king. You and I, we're selfish in, in, in our rule. We are, we are self-seeking. We, we always do what is best for us. Even when we serve people in our flesh, we're doing it out of a desire that hoping that something somehow will come back to us, maybe the praise of man or some sort of returned favor. But in Jesus's kingdom, the king lays down his life for the citizens. Just as was prophesied by Caiaphas 
when the Sanhedrin convened. He would die so that the whole nation didn't perish. Now, the nation perished. The, the, the nation of Israel, in a sense, would come to an end just a couple of decades after this, only to be, let's say, sort of rebuilt in the last few decades here after World War II. But what was really going on was that the nation was being saved. Not the earthly nation, but the eternal nation, the souls of the people inside that nation. And so from that day on, they plotted to kill him. They've stepped up their plan. So in Jesus' kingdom, the king lays down his life for the citizens. And then second, under uh, why you should consider Jesus' kingdom as superior to yours, in Jesus' kingdom, his will is the rule of the land. I struggled with how to state that, so let me explain this a little bit. In Jesus' kingdom, his will is the rule of the land. I'm going to look at verse 54. If you're filling in the blanks, it's will, rule, land. Verse 54 says, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Jesus has been in control of this whole thing the whole time. It's his will that is going to be accomplished. Even in the moments when it seems most apparent that somebody else's will is prevailing, it's actually Jesus' will is being accomplished. It was his will that they decided to kill him. I mean, can you fathom that? That's, that's unbelievable to think that he willed that these people would desire to kill him. They're, they are carrying out his plan. And in Jesus' kingdom, that's the way it is. In Jesus' kingdom, even the bad things that happen are, are working together to accomplish his plan. I said this a couple of weeks ago. That This was a quote from Johnny Erickson taught, at least roughly a quote. She said something to the tune of, God uses what he hates to accomplish what he loves. In Jesus' kingdom, it's his will that gets carried out. I want to be in that kingdom. I want to be a part of the kingdom where the perfect will of God is what gets accomplished. I am so sick and tired of being a part of an earthly kingdom where I am subjected to the will of leaders who don't care anything about me or the people that I love and the people that are close to me. They're seeking selfish gain and they're seeking for their will to be accomplished. It seems like the people who are in charge of our world are always just looking out for themselves. I am so happy to be a part of a kingdom where God's will is being done. And one day that will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus comes and he rules over this entire world, in his kingdom, his will is the rule of the land. In John 10, how do, okay, so that's maybe a stretch if you're just looking at verse 54. Because all verse 54 says is that after they decided they were going to kill him, Jesus no longer walked openly. And it maybe even sounds like he went and hid. Okay, is that Jesus' will being accomplished? Yes, it is. And I'll show you that from Scripture. John chapter 10 Verses 14 through 18 says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from the sheep pen. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. If Jesus did not lay his life down of his own will and volition, he would have never been arrested and crucified. They only had the power and authority to do that to him when he gave it to them. That's the way it is in Jesus' kingdom. That's the way it is. He's in control. He is the sovereign king ruling over his kingdom. Why do you want to be a part of Jesus' kingdom? Because there's order and there's a good will being carried out by the king. It's not, it's not the chaos that we see around us. It's not the, the meaninglessness of, of, of earthly kingdoms. It's an orderly king by a good king who loves his people, who lays down his life for his people, and it's his will that is the rule of the land. Therefore, we can trust that even the things that happened that were like, well, that wasn't good. We can trust that, but yes, it was. Because there's a king who's going to use that for greater good than had it not happened. We've spoken a lot about that the last couple of weeks. What do we do? How do we respond to God when, when suffering happens, when when we or people we love get sick, when we lose loved ones, when tragic things happen in life, what do we do with all of that? I don't want to repeat all of that. I just want to remind us that he's in control. And that's good news. Before we understand who he is and, and, and come into his kingdom, we think, ah, it's better if I'm in control. And then we get to this point where we realize, you know, maybe he should be in control. He's the king that lays down his life for his people. Let's let his will be the rule of our land and of our hearts. So, with these things in mind, I want to bring us to a conclusion of this part of John's gospel. And I want to bring us back to the question that I started with. Which kingdom will you choose? Many other things that I've not mentioned, just because I wanted to to stick mainly to our text. Now, many other things that I've not mentioned about Jesus' kingdom that are far superior to your kingdom that you're trying to build. And one is that his kingdom is eternal. It's everlasting. It will not be destroyed. There is, there is nobody that's going to take over his kingdom. He will remain the ruler forever. Your kingdom isn't. What you're building outside of the kingdom of Christ is at best going to last for a very short while. Even if, even if it lasts your whole life, if God chooses not to bring it crashing down in the middle of your life, which is a great act of mercy, by the way, I've seen, I've seen it again and again. I feel like that's what happened in my own life even, where God just kind of allows your kingdom to fall in on top of you so that he can bring you out of that into his kingdom but even if that doesn't happen, the kingdom you're building outside of Christ, it's like a sandcastle at low tide. You ever go to the beach and build a sandcastle, but you didn't take into account the fact 
that the, the water is going to come up at high tide and you've just built it where it's about to be washed away. That's what our lives are like outside of the kingdom of Christ. Like building sandcastles. And in just a few short hours, everything we built will be turned into nothing. There's a better way. The better way is to choose to live as a part of Christ's kingdom. Which will you choose? It's important that you make that decision, being aware of the consequences, being aware that if you choose to remain in your kingdom, building your kingdom for your own purposes, then you will suffer the fate that that kingdom is destined to suffer. Complete and utter loss. None of it will stand. But if you choose to join Christ's kingdom, if you choose to follow King Jesus, then you come into a kingdom that will last forever. You come into a kingdom that has a perfect ruler who lays down his life for his citizens, who does not, who does not give authority to anyone except for to accomplish his will. So much so that even the bad things that happen to you in your life will work to bring greater good for you in eternity. Which kingdom will you choose? Let's pray, and I want to ask the worship team to come and to prepare to lead us in worship. I just encourage you to close your eyes and just think for a moment about this choice that must be made between these two kingdoms. John has brought us to a point in his gospel where he's, he's presented all of his evidence He's presented these seven signs. He's brought forth witnesses. We've heard the words of Jesus himself, his claims about who he is. And now it's time for us to choose. Will we believe? Will we believe and enter into his kingdom and have eternal life? Will you believe Will you choose Jesus' kingdom? If you're ready today to choose his kingdom, that means laying down your right to kingship. It means laying down control and acknowledging that you're not doing a good job at leading your own life, that you need him. And even acknowledging that you've been a sinner in rebellion against his kingdom. If that's you, if you're ready to confess your sins and believe in Jesus, I just want to remind you, he laid down his life for you. He went to the cross and died the death that you deserve in your place so that you could be forgiven. And just as Caiaphas prophesied, it was better that this one man should go and die than for you and so many others to perish. So if that's you, I want to invite you into this prayer with me. Jesus, forgive me for sinning against you. Jesus, forgive me for trying to build my own kingdom when you invite me into yours. I believe that what you did on the cross was for me so that I could be forgiven and saved for all of eternity. Come into my life today and be my king. And teach me to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. We'll go ahead and stand as we get ready to worship together. We're going to receive the offering at this time. If you came today planning to give, please prepare your offerings. The general-